Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter number 24. Luke chapter 24. Well, I hope you had a wonderful Valentine's Day. I tell you this, I hope, I, I know, I was going to say I hope somebody loves you, but I know somebody loves you. Amen. The Lord loves us even if no one else does. Amen. And, uh, Luke chapter number 24 tonight. And uh, what a blessing it is to be here. I appreciate this good crowd on a Sunday night. What a blessing that is. That encourages my heart and makes preaching a little easier. Amen. If you pray, I mean, listen, when y'all don't show up, there's just a few of these folks. I'm mean to them. I'm downright ugly to them. So it helps them for you to be here tonight. So I'm proud that you are. Luke chapter 24. Let's begin reading in verse number 13. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. We're going to read down to verse 32. The Word of God says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus Himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holding that they should not know Him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, Jesus said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and He made as though He would have gone further. But they constrained Him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it, break and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the Scriptures? Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing it is to be here. I want to thank you personally for me and my family that we can be in the house of God tonight with your people and your word, Lord, that we might worship you and hear from you. I pray tonight that your word would have free course, that the Spirit of God would have liberty to work in our hearts and minds. And Lord, we need what we're going to hear tonight. Father, so often in these days that we're living in, we let our hearts grow cold uh, through iniquity and through apathy. But Lord, we, we need to hear from you. We need you to warm our hearts tonight. We need you to show us where we stand at all with Thee, and Father, to uh, give us uh, wisdom and the direction to get our lives in a right condition with You. And we'll be sure to thank You for what takes place. Bless every one of Your people, Lord. They've made an effort. They've been here tonight. I know they'll not go away empty-handed concerning spiritual things. And that'll be uh, for Your sake, and that'll be by Your help and grace. And we'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, we love You, and we ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I'm fascinated by the statement that these two disciples make concerning their interaction with the Lord. They say in verse number 32, Did not our heart burn within us while He talked with us by the way and while He opened us the Scripture? You know, when I consider the statement that they make, it could really be taken in one of a few different ways. Uh, Certainly it can be physically true that the human heart can overheat or it can be ignited or it can burn just as any material might be. But you know, I'm just going to venture a a deep guess here and say that's probably, Brother Charlie, not what they're talking about. Uh, There's another kind of way that our hearts can burn. The other day we was on our way home, Brother Ken. I, I knew I shouldn't have done this. You ever done something and you know it was wrong? You knew it was wrong when you was thinking about it. You knew it was wrong when you was doing it. I'm going to quit talking to you. You don't encourage me. Where's Brandon at? I know he does this. And and you knew it was wrong while you was doing it, and you knew it was wrong after it was doing it, and you really knew it was wrong when you was paying the price. The other day, I was driving home. I said, honey, I want crystals. And and I knew, man, I, I, I've been in this before. I mean, this ain't nothing new. And so we stopped and we got us a sack full and some chili cheese fries. And I won't tell you how many chili cheese fries, that's between me and God. But uh but we stopped and got us some chili cheese fries and, and it wasn't long, man, middle of the night, my heart was burning. I ain't talking about spiritual now. I mean my heart, I mean I'm talking about woke up like a thunderbolt from heaven. And I there there's there's that but I you know, I'm just gonna venture guess here and say that's probably not what you're talking about. I would say this, they're probably talking about spiritual warmth in their heart. Here's maybe how we could summarize what they're saying. Boy, didn't God feel close to us while Jesus was talking. Didn't we just feel His very presence in our midst? And did not we feel a kinship and a closeness to God while He spoke to us? Now, if they're making this statement in this passage, I don't think it is outside the realms of what's reasonable to suggest that if they notice a difference in their condition down in verse 32, then something must have changed in their experience between the earlier portion of the chapter and this latter statement that they make. In fact, I think we could say with scriptural authority that if they're saying our heart was burning within us down in verse 32, I think it would be fair to say that their heart had not been burning within them in the earlier portion of the past. In fact, we could maybe say this, that if they had uh, hearts aflame and on fire by verse 32, then they must have had hearts that were cold and unfeeling in the earlier portion of the past. Can I say to you tonight that a lot of us were afflicted by this cold-heartedness that these disciples felt. I'm not saying we hate God. I'm not saying we hate God's people. I'm not saying we don't love Him. I'm not saying that we do not serve Him. But how often in our life do we sense and experience a deadness and a coldness and a distance that God never intended for His people to have to live with. How many of you know this is true? God went through a lot of trouble for us to be able to be close to Him as humanity. He could have demanded we worship Him from afar. He could have merely filtered through bits and pieces of revelation that we might get glimpses of Him 
throughout human experience, but instead, hey, He left the ivory towers of heaven, robed Himself in the flesh of man, tabernacled Himself amongst us, walked amongst men, felt their hurt, their pain, uh, sensed and felt their sadness and their grief. He was touched with the feelings of their infirmities and all this He did that He might be a faithful high priest that we might come boldly under the throne of grace. I'm saying He went to a lot of trouble so that we could be close to Him. And yet so often we find ourselves in a condition where we have grown distant and we have grown unfamiliar with fellowship with Him. I guess what I'm saying tonight is they were cold-hearted. And sometimes in your Christian life and mine, we'll have times that we are cold-hearted. But I think when we read this passage of Scripture, they started out, Brother Ken, with a cold heart. They ended in verse 32 with their hearts on fire. I guess what we have here is the cure for a cold heart. I want you to notice a few thoughts with me tonight that maybe might be a little instructive and help to us as we consider this. Number one, I want you to think with me about the setting of a cold heart. And you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I mean, what kind of condition is a person in wherein they have a cold heart? Or we might say it this way, what things could be present in a person's life that could result or could allow for a cold-hearted condition? You know, sometimes we have this idea in our head that uh, distance from God, that disobedience to God, that that a that a wandering from God is always accompanied by the outward vestiges of sin and of darkness. But I'm here to tell you tonight, listen, you can look like you've got everything right in your life, but still be drifting away from the Lord. Not only that, we might say this, when we see someone in a cold-hearted condition, we automatically assume there must be some fundamental areas of their life that is incorrect. We imagine they're out of the will of God. We imagine, as we already said, there's some deep, dark sin in their life. But when I read about these disciples, I don't really find much to condemn them over. I mean, there's a few things, and God nails what those things are, and we'll mention them before we're done. But when I read about these disciples, I read that they've got more right than they've got wrong, and yet they found themselves in a cold-hearted condition. When we find these two disciples, the Lord Jesus has been dead, as they have said, for three days. Now, something they don't know that you and I have the benefit of knowing is He is risen and alive at this moment. Uh, But they do not know that. They are not aware of that. They have been to Jerusalem to keep the feast of the Passover. Uh, It's entirely possible that there was more disciples than just merely the twelve that sort of hovered and orbited around the ministry of our Lord. It's entirely possible they had been part of those disciples that had watched and observed our Lord's ministry and had heard His words and heard His teachings. It's entirely possible they had been meeting with the apostles in their time in Jerusalem. It's entirely possible, though there were none that were stood with Him at the cross, all men filtered by and beheld Him and wagged the tongue at Him. Very likely they had seen it. They described how that the tomb is an empty place. They had probably made their way by there. I'm saying that they had experienced all of these things and yet they had a cold heart. Let me just catalog them for you. Can I do that? Listen right here, Brother Charlie. I would say this, four things. Number one, they had been to the place, but they still had a cold heart. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I think it is very likely that they had probably made a little detour by way of Calvary while they had been in Jerusalem. 
Certainly the concern and the consternation that they feel over the crucifixion of our Lord suggests to us that they loved Him, that they cared for Him, that they were deeply interested in Him and His ministry and in His life. And it just almost to me beggars belief to think that they would pass by through Jerusalem. The Lord had been crucified and not go by that hillside, not see where that cross had stood, not behold where the blood of God had ran out and had been shed for us. I mean, it's hard for me to even imagine that they would not have gone by there and seen where our Lord had died. Surely part of their troubling and part of their worry and part of their grief centers around the fact that though they may have not stood with Him and by Him at the cross, undoubtedly they were deeply aware of the suffering He had experienced and Calvary had changed them in a meaningful way. It seems to be all they can talk about. Whenever they run into Jesus, they said, don't you know what's happened? Now what were they talking about? They weren't talking about the resurrection because they didn't believe yet that He was resurrected. They're talking about the crucifixion. Calvary made a deep impression on them. And here's what I'm getting at. Uh, Listen now. They had been to the place of the crucifixion. And yet here, just a few days later, Brother Ken, they're walking away and they're cold hearted. You know, every single believer, their uh, experience of God and their life in Christ, it begins at Calvary. We sort of imagine... And there's this nefarious idea in a lot of Christianity today that if a, if a person gets messed up, it's because they're never in in the first place. There's a lot of folks that have this idea that if somebody gets real messed up, if they get out and sin, if they get backslid, if they get wrong, well, that's just evidence that they're never saved in the first place. That's going to be real good until their kids get messed up. That's going to be real good until their marriage gets messed up. <laughs> that's going to be real good until their life gets messed up. It's going to be real good till their favorite preacher gets messed up. I ain't talking about you because I'm your favorite preacher. But what I'm saying is this, they have this idea, man, if somebody gets messed up, they must have never been saved in the first place. I don't find that anywhere in my Bible. In fact, it seems to be uh, to me that it, other than it being a story of the manifestation of God to mankind, really what the Bible is is a story of people that knew God and got messed up. I mean, over and over and over again. It's people that knew God and loved God. You can go down the line, man. You can look at Abraham. You can look at Isaac. You can look at Jacob. You can look at Lot. You can go down through the list. You can look at David. Uh, you can go down the list. You can look at all of them. Solomon, and you'll find people that knew God and got messed up. They had been to a place of, of salvation with God. I wouldn't say of those Old Testament saints they had been to Calvary. But I would say of us New Testament saints, and let me give you one that had been to Calvary and still got messed up. His name's Simon Peter. He still got messed up. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this, just because you're born again, that don't mean you can't get cold-hearted on God. They had been to the place. Number two, I'd say this. I just noticed this. I noticed not only had they been to the place, but the Savior had prevailed. Now this is amazing to me. They're walking in the victory of the resurrection and don't even know it. What I'm saying is they're sitting there and they're tore all to pieces because Jesus is dead laying in a grave, but He's walking right beside them. The Lord had won the victory. He had defeated death. He had been risen from the grave. They had everything they needed to be able to rejoice and face the world with boldness and with courage and compassion. They had all the things they needed to not be in this condition, but they're still in this condition. One of the frustrating things in parenting, and you've experienced this in raising your kids, is when you give your kids everything they need and somehow it's like it's a talent. They manage to go around every resource you provided and do things the hardest way possible anyway. But it's a skill. My kids, they'd, they'd win a, a, an Olympic medal at it. 
the fact is, you know, there's a parallel truth there in, in Christianity as well. Uh, you know God's given us everything we need. He's won the victory. But just because He's won the victory, that don't mean there ain't folks walking around in defeat. I said, I'm going to say that again. I feel like there's more than there than you thought it was. So I'm going to say it again. I, just because He's won the victory, that don't mean there ain't folks walking around in defeat. There's folks live their life in a perpetual defeat. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's folks struggle with a lot of things. I'm not trying to be hard-nosed on anybody. But I'm saying this. We need to quit looking down. We need to quit looking miserable. We need to quit looking sorry. And we need to start looking up and, and, and recognizing just exactly what the Lord has done for us. The victory that we have in Him. I'm saying this. Every problem they had did not exist except in their mind. Every problem they had did not exist except in their mind. What was the problem that they had? They said, well, Jesus has done been whooped. But He hadn't been whooped. He was right there with them. They said, well, somebody's done stole the body of Jesus. But nobody stole the body of Jesus. Uh, he had laid His life down. Then He took it up again and walked out of that tomb. Uh, every problem they had, the Lord had already conquered and solved, but they're walking in defeat. So it's possible for the Lord to have given us the victory, given us everything we need, and yet us still grow cold-hearted. You know, the Bible says that He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. In other words, He's given us everything we need to live a Christian life in a way that pleases Him. We're not lacking anything in our spiritual resources, but it's up to us to utilize them. So I see they, that the Savior had prevailed. Number three, I notice this. They were walking in the path. Now you say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, and I want to be careful here. I... I understand their condition is not ideal to God. But evidently their position is. Because the Lord found them on this path. He knew where they were. They're about to turn around and go back to Jerusalem and bear witness in a way they could not had they not been leaving Jerusalem and walking the eight miles to their home in a mail. They were exactly where God wanted them to be and where God needed them to be. And yet we find that they were cold-hearted. You know, it's possible to be right smack in the will of God and still be distant from God. We have this idea sometimes like life is nothing but just cold equations. And if we if we get everything situated correctly in our life, then we will always just feel this overwhelming and overflowing abundancy of devotion and passion and joy and zeal. But you know that's not the truth and never has it been the truth. You can be right where God wants you to be you still got to stay close to the Lord. I'm talking about you can be doing exactly what God wants you to be doing. And so often, I've seen this as a pastor, you even as a church member have probably seen this. I've commented on it before, man. Uh, people be in the will of God and they'll grow discontented with Jesus. They'll grow discontented with something about serving the Lord. And they think that a change in venue, a change in setting is going to change, uh, produce a change in spirit. And very often, they'll go out of the frying pan, Brother Ken, and into the fire because they'll walk away from the will of God thinking if they just get in a new place, it's going to be like it once was. and It's going to be better than it's ever been. But the truth of the matter is this, it don't matter where we're at if we're trusting the Lord and living for God and giving her all for Him. Uh, listen, He can make the darkest paths to be shining like the uh, brightest daylight. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we're in the most glorious position there is, if we're not walking with God, a perpetual cloud will hang over our head. I'm saying that a lot more has to do with your spiritual condition than it does your scene or your setting, your context. And these people, they were in the will of God. And that's, you know, that's how the devil deceives people. He'll get them. And I've seen this happen. You've heard me say it before, but I've seen the devil get sin in somebody's life. Those people allow it, but I'm saying the devil tempts them, gets sin in their life. 
They grow discontented with Jesus because that's what happens when you get sin in your life. You'll grow discontented with Jesus. And then the devil will come along and whisper and say, uh, really what you need is a new this. You say a new what, preacher? Well, a new number of things. Sometimes the devil will come along and say, if you had a better job, if you had a better spouse, if you had a better church, if you had a better family, if you had a better whatever it might be, and the devil will say, that gives you peace in your life. You know peace only comes from fellowship with the Lord. It only comes from fellowship with the Lord. You can have fellowship with God and be missing a lot of things in life and be perfectly content. That's what Paul said. He said, I have learned whatsoever state I am in therewith to be content. He said, I've learned how to be a base and I've learned how to abound. He said, I've learned to have everything. I've learned to have nothing and none of that to affect or change my contentment in God. A man can do without a lot if he's got God. And a man can have everything the world has to offer, but if he ain't got God, he won't, have, he won't be content. He will not have peace. Uh, and the devil come along and say, if you just trade all that in for this, everything will be better. And so about the time that they quit the job, walk off from the family, leave their spouse, quit on church, change everything about it, they'll find they're just as hollow and empty as they once were, and the devil will just sit back and laugh at them. Just sit back and laugh at them. At the mess that they've created in their life, all while they're trying to fix a problem that Jesus has already solved. I'm saying this, they were walking in the path. They were where they needed to be but they were cold-hearted just the same. And then I noticed this. Not only do we see they had been to the place. Man, they had been to Calvary. The Savior had prevailed. The Lord was risen. Victory was theirs. They were walking in the path. They were doing the will of God. But I noticed this. They were blessed with His presence. The problem was not that Jesus wouldn't be close to them. The problem was that they refused to acknowledge and be close to Him. He's walking in the path with them. But the Bible tells us, and I don't want to get ahead in my sermon, I'm going to preach it here in about two hours, but they, they were walking with the Lord, and yet they were cold-hearted. You know, it's possible to be in the very place where God's working, and your heart to be a million miles away. I think sometimes we think of the ministry of the Holy Ghost like a thermostat on the wall, where if we just set it to the right temperature, everybody's going to feel it. But you know, I've learned something being around church houses long enough. We could set it to 95 degrees in here. Some of you would still shiver. We, we could turn her down to 40 degrees and some of y'all would still fan. The reality of the matter is this, uh, that the Holy Ghost ministering in a place, it ain't like the thermostat where you crank it up and everybody's going to feel it. I've seen God work in one person's life while another person sat there like a bump on the log. The truth is, how you interact with God is not predicated on what your neighbor's doing. It's predicated on what you're doing. They were blessed with the presence of the Lord. I mean, many of us would say, if I could just have Jesus walking with me like they did, I'd never complain. I'd never be dissatisfied. And yet we find that He is with us ever present, day in, day out. And still, if you're like me, sometimes we grow dissatisfied. Sometimes we complain. Sometimes we're as close to Him as we ought to be. So the problem in their life had nothing to do with where they were at, with who was with them, with what was the reality of their spiritual situation. The Savior had prevailed. It was not that there was any lacking in their spiritual experience. They had been to Calvary. They knew the Lord. They had plenty of knowledge in their head and in their mind. The Lord rebukes them here in a little while, says that they were fools and slow of heart to believe all the things that the prophets had spoken. He couldn't have said that if they didn't know what the prophets had spoken. So they had everything they needed. But still, they were cold-hearted. Kind of like us as church folks. 
here, here in 2021, sitting here on top of 2,000 years of church history, uh, on top of more resources to study the Bible and know the Bible more widely available, the opportunity uh, to serve the Lord today than ever the church has been blessed with. And still sometimes we let our hearts grow cold. Now you might say, well preacher, that's good and everything. I don't want to be that way. How would I know if I was cold hearted? I would say this. They weren't walking around saying, boy, don't you feel cold hearted. It wasn't until their heart warmed up that they ever realized that their heart had cooled down in the first place. So it's possible to be cold hearted and not even know that you're cold hearted. How could a man tell that he's in that condition? Well, I would say that there's three things there. Number one, look at verse 16 with me. The Bible says this, but their eyes were holding that they should not know him. Number one, you say, preacher, what are the symptoms of a cold heart? The first one is they were oblivious to his presence. You know why they didn't see him? Because they weren't looking for him. Later on, you know why they could see him? Is because he was revealed unto him, meaning they recognized that the man talking with them fit the description of the man that the man that was talking with them was talking about. And they recognized who he is. What was it that had blinded them, their lack of faith? What was it that opened their eyes? It was their faith in Him and in His Word. The reason that they could not see His presence was not because His presence was not there, but rather because they were operating in their emotions and in their flesh and in the strength of themselves instead of the strength of faith. It's not that believing makes God present there. God's present already. But it's with the eyes of faith that we see Him working in our life. You know what I found about cold-heartedness in the life of the believer. When you get cold-hearted, you'll just start ignoring the things God does in your life. You know what I've found in my life, and, and I've seen it in other people's lives, man, when their heart is warmed up close by the fires of God, it seems like they're always talking about the little things God is doing. They're talking about the blessings that God is putting in their life. They're talking about the way that God is orchestrating things and administrating things in their life. And sometimes they'll say things like this, I'll pray, and He's just so close. I can just sense His presence and I know that He's there. Listen, He's as close to every one of us. There ain't, it ain't like God said, I want to hang out with that dude. I like him. God's present and close in the life of every believer. The difference is they are with eyes of faith beholding His presence and His closeness. You know what you'll find? If you'll start looking for God in your life, you'll find Him there. I'm saying if you're a child of God, if you've been born again and you know the Lord is your Savior, you start looking for God, quit chalking things up, happenstance and, 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 uh, incident, start looking for the providence of God and you'll find that there's more than just good luck going on in your life. There's more than just good fortune going on in your life. You'll find that there's the providential hand of God's favor and goodness in your life. Uh, listen, hey, good luck, whatever that is. And, and uh, that, that belongs right in that camp with evolution and everything else, this idea of luck, this idea of happenstance. We don't believe in that. We believe that there's God sits on the circle of the earth and He's in charge of everything. And things go exactly the way that He says that they're going to go. Uh, that's what we as Bible believers believe. But this notion that, well, I just lucked out. I just had good luck. By the way, I ain't beating up on somebody using that verbiage. I know sometimes it just might be in the house you was raised in, the culture you was in. But if you actually believe that it's merely due to good fortune or the luck of the draw or the, the pull of the straw, I'm sorry, my friend, you're wrong. If you're a child of God, every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow. I'm saying if you'll start looking for him, you'll start finding him. Uh, so I'd say the first thing, they were oblivious to his presence. And I, 
I've been there. I don't know about you. I've been there in my life where I've said, well, I just, I just wonder where God is. Can't find God. The truth is, He hadn't gone anywhere. He's the same place He's always been. I guess I just need to start looking for Him again. And I'll find out He's still present there. So number one, they were oblivious to His presence. Number two, look down at verse 17. The Bible says, And He said unto them, Jesus said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one another as ye walk and are sad? We could sum that up by saying this. What's got you so tore up? That's what He's saying to them. What are you all talking about that is troubling you so? They answer back almost as though Jesus is foolish for not knowing what's going on. Little did they know He knew more about what they was talking about than they ever would. And isn't that just how it is? Boy, I might just preach here in a little bit. Isn't that just how it is? God says, why is your countenance fallen? Why are you grieved? Why is your soul troubled? We'll look up at God and we'll say, God, don't you know I've got these problems? Don't you know that my health is failing? Don't you know that my finances are, are barren? Don't you know that my family is broken? Don't you know I've got these problems, God? And God looks at us and goes, huh, really? Because the truth is, He knows more about it than we do. But you know, when you read what they said, they just it's almost breathless. I mean, they just they kind of spill it out. Don't you know what's happened in Jerusalem? And this has happened and that. And don't you know that Jesus, we thought He was a prophet, mighty in word and in deed. And the Pharisees and the Romans, they took Him and they, they crucified Him. We thought He was going to be the one to, to, to deliver Israel. I mean, it's, just, it's almost breathless the way they just pour this out on Him. And Jesus said, what are you walking around talking about that's got you so sad? Here's what He's getting at. He's saying, why are you dwelling on it if it's grieving you? Why are you dwelling on it if it's grieving you? Can I say this? The second symptom of a cold heart, not only is a person oblivious to his presence, but usually they're obsessed with the problems. They were obsessed with the problems of Jesus. I mean, they were, it's all they could talk about. They were so busy talking about their problems that Jesus sidled up beside them and they didn't even know he was there. You know, it's possible to get so fixated on the problems that exist in our life that we miss the things that God's trying to do through our life. Now, wait a minute. Somebody's going to say, oh, preacher, but you don't know. And maybe I don't. But I'll tell you this. Whatever problems that you have, they don't loom larger than God. And if they do, it's because you've allowed them to. Not because they must of necessity do so. Preacher, you don't understand. I'd say they had some big problems. But when Jesus shows up, He's there not, not to make their problems worse. He's there to fix their problems. But they walked for miles with Him. You listening? They walked for miles with Him. And all they can talk about is their problems. Meanwhile, the solution is right there present with Him. If they had just stopped and looked and said, you know, this is Jesus Himself. Would you please fix our problems? They would have saved at least four or five miles of heartache. Wouldn't they? Wonder in our life, often the, the symptom of our cold-heartedness, we're more fixated on whatever problems exist in our life than we are of the power and presence and purpose of God in and through our life. I'm not minimizing your problem. I know they're real problems. And I know they're big problems in your life. And I'm not saying they don't exist. All I am saying is this. Whatever problems you've got, God's bigger than those in the first place. And God's doing something through those problems. If you'll get your eyes off of those problems and get your eyes on Him, you'll find that God can do something greater than what your problems are trying to do to you. They were obsessed 
with their problems. And you know, that's a, that's a typical thing. When somebody gets all messed up, been out of shape, all they can think about is the problems that they have. I battle that as a pastor. Problems just, it's like they got a, they, they've got, they've got a regular room in a pastor's mind. They just live there and you just sometimes have to push them out of your mind and say, I, I'm not going to focus on those things. I know they're there, but I'm just going to give them to God and trust Him with them. And I'm going to get my mind on what God's trying to do in my life. Because if you're not careful, it'll give you a cold heart when you spend all your time thinking about your problems. If the only thing you ever think about your problems, then you're going to think all you ever have is problems. When that's not the case in your life or in mine. So they were oblivious to His presence. They were obsessed with their problems. Then notice this, verse 25. Then He said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? So the third thing I would say, Brother Charlie, is this. They were oblivious to His presence. God was right there with Him, but they weren't aware of it. Number two, they were obsessed with their problems. All they wanted to talk about was what was going wrong and what was messed up in their life. But number three, I noticed this. They were obstinate toward His promises. He calls them slow of heart to believe the things that the prophets had spoken. In other words, God was trying to do a work in their heart, but they were slow. They were disobedient like Jonah of old. They was hanging back and holding on and trying to keep from having to believe what the Word of God said. You know why? Because, man, it would have been a whole different thing. And they, they grow to learn this. When they talk about Him, Brother Ken, they call Him a prophet. It was one thing for Him to be a prophet. It's another thing for Him to be the very Son of God. There, there's a large step between those two things. And there's a large, uh, there's a large chasm between the expectations if He's just a prophet versus if He's God in the flesh. And I think they understood that, listen, if He is a prophet, they could support Him, they could listen to Him, they could pray for Him. But if He is the very Son of God, they'd have to bow before Him and take Him as their Savior and live the rest of their life in devotion unto Him and His cause, who, by the way, in their minds, has just been nailed to a cross. They were unwilling to take that plunge, and so they were obstinate. They were unwilling to believe what the Bible had said about them. You know, I found this in, in, in my life, and, and you've probably seen it in your life, and maybe the lives of others as well. When somebody gets a cold heart, it ain't just that they want to talk about their problems. They don't want the help that's offered to them. Have you ever been so hooked on your grief that you didn't want to let it go? You wrap yourself in it like a security blanket because it absolves you of guilt and of your actions. And said, I don't want to let this thing go because if I do, I'll have to move on in my life. That's a good indication of a cold heart. They were unwilling to listen to and believe what Jesus... Here's the Son of God Himself saying, you got it all wrong, fellas. I'm not dead. I'm right here. And they're saying, I don't know. Maybe if I just had a little proof. He's right there in front of them. Maybe if I just had a little sign from heaven. I'd say like God standing right there in front of you, that's a pretty good sign. But isn't it amazing the strength of human unbelief? That when faced directly with the incontrovertible proof of God's truth and, and, and integrity, that He's right there, that He said this, that He keeps His promises, still the human heart will be slow to believe. Oftentimes it's because it's everything that's involved within it. They probably didn't want to believe because of what it would have called upon them to do. Very often when our heart is cold, we don't want to get help from the Lord because of what it will call on us to do. It might mean forgiving some folks we ain't ready to forgive. 
It might mean getting back in and doing some things that we ain't ready to get back in and do. It might, it might mean serving the Lord in some ways that we've just enjoyed the leisure of not having to. And oftentimes we'll look at it and here the Lord's trying to give us the help that we're begging for, but we're refusing to take it when He's giving it to us. Uh, the fact is, when we, when, when, when we want to get help, we'll receive help. You know, I've learned in life, and you probably know this to be true as well, some folks ain't never going to be helped because they don't want help. They want to, they, they want to be helped, but they do not want help. You understand the distinction? They want the whole world to stop and dote on them, but they don't actually want the help that's going to help them get up on their feet and go on and do something for God. That's a good indication of a cold heart. Now you say, alright preacher, you beat up on us. What do we do about it? I may have you convinced that your spouse has a cold heart tonight. You say, preacher, how can they be helped? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Let me give you a, a few things that will help your spouse. Alright? Number one, when we talk about the solutions for a cold heart. How do we get out of this condition, preacher? How do we get our heart back warmed up close to God? I'd say number one tonight, Speak to him. Speak to him. How did things begin? Well, the Bible says in verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. What was the first step to getting themselves in the right condition? That, well, they had to have a conversation with him. Can I tell you the first thing that will help you get where you need to be? You need to have a conversation with him. I, I, I jotted these things down. Listen now. Number one, stop criticizing him and start calling on him. What were they doing in that conversation? They were talking about all the ways that God had done messed up. They were saying, we thought he was supposed to be God. He said he was God, but if he's God, how could he be dead? How could he have allowed this to happen? We put our faith in him. We trusted in him. He's messed up. And he's dropped the ball. Meanwhile, the Lord's standing right there with the answer they needed. But they couldn't quit criticizing him long enough to hear the words of the Lord. You know, it's all right to question God. It's natural to question God. It's not okay to criticize Him. It's okay to look and say, Lord, I don't understand. It's okay to say, Lord, help me understand. I need to understand. But it's another thing to look up towards heaven and say, God, you messed up. Now you say, preacher, what happened? Well, God will forgive you even if you do that. But I'm saying it ain't healthy and it ain't normal and it isn't acceptable in the eyes of God. So you say, preacher, how do I get help? Well, number one, quit criticizing him and start calling him. Quit trying to tell God everything he's done wrong and start saying, Lord, won't you help me to understand what it is that you're doing in my life? Go ahead and give him the benefit of the doubt. He's the only one that's ever really deserved it. He's the only one that's ever really never messed up. He's the only one that's ever really truly been counted faithful. So go ahead and give him the benefit of the doubt. Quit criticizing him. Start calling on him. Number two, I'd say this. Uh, not only we need to quit criticizing and start calling on him, but we need to quit analyzing him and start asking him. Uh, you know what they were doing in that conversation? They're trying to unriddle this whole thing. They're trying to figure out how what Jesus said to be true could be true in light of the things that had taken place. But you know, clarity did not come from analysis. They weren't walking down the road and all of a sudden one of them, a light bulb went off and they looked and said, I've got it. I understand it. I know what he is doing. That's not where peace came from. You know where peace came from? When Jesus said, let me tell you what's going on. You know, in our life, we spend a lot of time analyzing him when it'd be a lot easier just to ask him. I've seen this as a pastor. I've seen people do, do relational and mental hula hoops to try to unriddle someone 
instead of just going to them and asking them what the problem is. I've seen people go to just unbelievable lengths to try to rectify a problem that doesn't even exist. And they would have known that had they just gone to them in the first place and said, we okay? We alright? Is something wrong? I've seen people try to fix everything they think's wrong with a person's life and not have a clue what's really going on in it. When if they had just gone to them and said, hey, are you doing okay? Is there anything I can help you with? That's the nature of, of humanity. We, we like the pride of believing we figured it out on our own. But you know, it's dangerous to live a Christian life like that. You know why? Because we ain't never going to figure God out on our own. Uh, that, that's, that's what the word revelation means. That's what we mean when we say we know God by revelation. Is that we could not merely intuit who God is. We could not merely, we can look towards the heavens and learn some things about it. We can look down at creation and learn some things about it. But listen now, if we're really going to know who God is, the only way we're going to know it is for God to reveal it to us. Now He's done that through His Word. But very often in our lives, there's things we don't understand about what God's doing. What do I do, preacher? Quit analyzing Him and start asking. So number one, speak to him. Number two, I'd say this, seek for him. Seek for him. Look what it says in verse 28. The Bible says, And they drew nigh unto the village, whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. Now, somebody's going to say, Oh, preacher, I don't have to look for him. He'll come looking for me. He came looking for them. And he found them. And it still didn't fix the problem. Their problem was not fixed by Him seeking them. I want to be careful in what I say here. I understand every every bit of the salvation you or I have, we have by the grace of God. And I understand He came and He found us where we were. Listen, things changed since we got born again. Now we're not a lost, poor little lamb sinner out there broken and hanging, dangling over the pit of hell. Now we're a child of God and we have a responsibility to live. And as such, understand that very often what's lacking in our life, we'll say, well, he'll come looking for me like that, like that uh, lost sheep. Hey, that's true, but what a mess the other 99 would have been if they had ran off while he was off looking for the one. The truth of the matter is, we've got to seek for him. We've got to look for him. We've got to pursue after him. We've got to call on him. We're waiting for him to show up and open the heavens and fix our hearts. When the truth is, he's sitting there waiting on us saying, draw nigh unto me, and I'll draw nigh unto you. I notice here a couple things. I'll just mention them. Notice first off the Savior's plan to depart. When the Bible says he made as though he would have gone further, what it's saying is he was going to go on. Uh, There's another place in the New Testament when a man cries out unto the Lord where it says that Jesus would have gone on. He would have passed on. But this man cried out. There's a lot of deep truths in there that I can't even unriddle were I to have a hundred sermon hours to do so. Uh, But I would say this. One thing I can glean and learn from that is this. Had they let him go on, he would have gone on. Had they not cried out and said, No, stay with us. They would have stayed just as cold-hearted as they were before this conversation ever began. Uh, he, would, he would have gone on, but then I see the disciples pleaded well. They say, no, abide with us. Abide with us. For it is toward evening and the day is far spent and he went in to tarry with them. When they asked him to stay, they still didn't know who he was. When they asked him to stay, they still did not know who he was, but they knew he had the answer. Are you listening to me tonight? Peace comes from knowing who he is. But before they ever knew who he was, they knew they needed him. Say, preacher, if I, if I just know God better, I get help. Yeah, and the only way you're going to get help is to know God better. So you better make sure you don't pass on by. You better make sure you reach out and grab hold of him. 
I think about the blind man in Jericho who cried out to the Lord and said, Son of David, have mercy on me. He couldn't see what he looked like, Brother Tim. He couldn't see what he looked like. He was just believing somebody else's word that he was even there in the first place. He had no way of knowing. But he reached out in faith and said, I don't know what he looks like. I don't know what he's going to do. But I'm going to cry out to him because I know he's the only one that can help me. Can I tell you, the only one to give you peace in your heart is going to be the Lord. He's the only one. You say, preacher, when he makes me feel better, I'll, I'll grab a hold of him. No, that ain't how it works. Go ahead and grab a hold of him and he'll make you feel better. He'll give you peace in your heart, peace in your life. So we gotta, we gotta speak to him. We gotta seek for him. Then I'd say this, we gotta sit with him. Verse number 30, the Bible says, and it came to pass as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave to them. And their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. Immediately following this, they, they look at one another and said, Boy, our hearts burned within us. But it was not until they sat down at the table of fellowship that the revealing work of God was completed in their life. They had to sit down with it and break bread and share a meal. We could maybe summarize this by, by saying it in three ways, right? We could talk about praying, speak to Him. Praying, speak to Him. Number two, we could talk about Reading the Word of God. Seek for Him. Seek for Him. Pursue after Him. Number three, we talk about fellowship and worship. We need to sit down with Him. Now, how do we do that? Well, I always thought this was interesting. I mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again. Notice the master of the table. It was customary at that time for whoever was the head over the household to be the one that broke the bread. It was a place of honor. It was a place of status. And it was the responsibility of a good host to be the one that prayed and broke the bread and distributed it. So you would imagine they would have come in and sat down and they would have broke the bread and they would have distributed it to Jesus and maybe they would have washed His feet and they would have prepared the table. But the Bible says that as He sat at meat, He took the bread and blessed it and broke and gave them. In other words, we'd say it this way. You know how He behaved when He sat down? He behaved like the master of the house. The master of the house. They could have got offended at that and said, who do you think you are? But instead they said, no, there's something different about this man. Don't say anything to him. Let him go ahead and break the bread. You know, we're only going to get help in our fellowship and worship of the Lord when we're willing to own Him as the master of the house. When we're willing to quit telling God how He needs to, how He needs to be God and start just letting Him be God in our life. Part of the reason we don't get no help is we're trying to tell God how to do it and how to fix it and what to do. Hey, if you had the answer, you wouldn't be in this mess in the first place. Go ahead and step back and just let God be God. Let Him take control over the situation. I see the master of the table, but then I see the miracle of the table. The Bible says that when He gave it to them, now I'm not going to read anything into my King James Bible that ain't living there. It says He gave it to them, and as soon as they took the bread, their eyes were opened. And they knew Him. And He vanished out of their sight. Now what a precious passage. I, we could say a lot about this, but I'm going to try to confine myself to this closing statement here tonight. I'd say this. God did a miracle in that place that satisfied every need of their heart. And you know what it was they needed? They needed to see Him for who He was. And he could have merely vanished out of their sight and not revealed to them who He was. But that revelation that took place, it did not take place with the tangible eye. I don't think he physically looked any different in that moment than he had before because the Bible says earlier their eyes were holding 
that they did not know Him. You know what happened? The Lord lifted the scales off. You know what God was trying to do? He was just trying to get them to talk to Him. He was just trying to get them to invite Him into His home. He was just trying to get them to let Him prepare a meal for Him and break bread. And as soon as He had put that in their hands, He had done everything that He needed to. And He vanished out of their sight. In other words, He got them in a right place of prayer, of study, and of worship and fellowship of Him. And once He got them there, you know, He left. You know why? Because the ways in which He interacts with us in this dispensation of grace are far superior to what they enjoyed at that dinner table. They didn't, he didn't need to stay there anymore. They had everything they needed to have the relationship with Him that was so missing in their life. Where did it come from? Come from prayer. Hey, stop criticizing Him. Start calling Him. Stop analyzing Him. Just go ahead and ask Him, Lord, what are you doing in my life? I don't understand. Preacher, He might not answer. Well, He might want you to keep asking. So keep asking. Speak to Him. Hey, seek after Him. Seek for Him. Seek for Him. Start asking Him. Say, Lord, I want You in my life. I want Your presence close and precious to me. And then sit with Him. Spend time in fellowship with Him. Worship of Him. And you know, you'll find that even, even for a bunch of backslid Baptists like us, He can, he can warm up our heart and put us in a right condition with Him. Let's bow together tonight. As a musician comes to play, the altar is open. And I just want you to mind the Lord tonight. If He spoke to your heart, listen, there may be folks here whose heart is aflame already. You're on fire for God. And you didn't need a word of what was preached tonight. But can I say this? Probably there'll come a day you will. And even if you don't right now, I promise you there's folks that you love that do. So we ought to be praying for those folks. And then there may be some that say, Preacher, I wouldn't say I'm frozen solid. But I'd have to admit I've lost a few degrees from my devotion to Him. Don't let yourself get any colder. Come down and say, Lord, kindle my heart afresh in me. Uh, the altar is open tonight. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify Your Son. We ask it in Jesus' name.